Well, my friends, it's a new year, and we are continuing in our study of Proverbs. And if you're new with us, you haven't missed too much. We've been going through the famous book of Proverbs. Proverbs are transcendent of of biblical Christianity. Every culture is full of Proverbs and proverbial thinking and axiomatic sayings. Uh, A bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush, for example. Uh, But the Proverbs of the Scriptures, though there are other ancient Proverbs, Egyptian Proverbs, and even uh, pagan kind of peoples, uh, Hittites, those sorts that we encounter uh, that were contemporaries of the Hebrew people, Uh, There's nothing like the book of of Proverbs in the Bible. There's nothing like the Hebrew Proverbs, nothing like the Proverbs that are inspired by God himself, authored by the wise King Solomon, inspired by his father David, and entrusted to the people and fathers of Israel for their conveyance age after age after age. And we're learning some lessons in this book that are are so valuable. We find ourselves today in Proverbs chapter 4, And I want to start by reading you these 27 verses, and then we'll look at it quite simply, uh, I think, because its message is very straightforward, but extremely helpful, especially to those of you who are looking at your college years and wondering, you know, where you're going. And this, I think, is a map and a path that could be very helpful to you. Proverbs chapter 4, I'll read it to you in its entirety, starting in verse 1. Here... O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender, and the only son in the sight of my mother, and he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live, acquire wisdom Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will guard you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. Hear, my son, and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I've directed you in the way of wisdom. I've led you in upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded, and if you run, you will not stumble. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it, do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they're robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, Give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart 
with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. This is the word of the living God. The title of this sermon is A Father's Wisdom. A Father's Wisdom. And I'd like you to think generationally, if at all possible. Because what you have happening in Proverbs 4 are three speeches addressed to a son. Three of 12 that make up this a longer section in Proverbs running all the way to chapter 10. We've heard that phrase, my son, repeatedly already in the three chapters we've covered. We'll hear it more. But in chapter 4, we hear it three times. Hear, O sons, chapter 4, verse 1. Verse 10, hear my son and accept my sayings. And verse 20, my son, give attention to my words. This is some sort of poetic or hymnic arrangement that Solomon is crafting as he assembles his proverbs and entrusts them to fathers for the future. That all the heads of household in Israel, that moms and dads would grab a hold of this teaching and continue to convey it as it's been conveyed in the past. And so to think about Proverbs chapter 4 is to think in a way that's contrary to popular wisdom today. Popular wisdom today values the words of contemporaries over the words of those who've gone before. It cares about what people say now, what's popular now, what's culturally relevant now, what your peers are saying, rather than what your parents have said. This isn't a merely a sin of today. This is something that is as old as the book of Hebrews and the book of Proverbs and the people of Hebrews. It's also old as the book of Hebrews. It's, it's been the pattern of sinful generations to listen to each other rather than listen to the past. What do I mean by that? G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy. He was an intellectual Roman Catholic. His writing is pithy and sometimes quite potent. But writing in there, he he talks about something called the democracy of the dead. He's going to use the word democrat, and I don't want you to get nervous. Uh, He doesn't mean it the way you mean it. Uh, He means it in the sense of the voice of the people democracy, its traditional historic meaning. Insert conservative strong political comment here that I'll withhold in my heart. So don't get thrown off by that. I want to read you this quote from G.K. Chesterton about why it's so important that we listen to those who've gone before us, our parents being one example of that, but it's more than just them. It's those who are beyond them. It's not just your father, it's your father's father and his father and his father before them. Listen to what Chesterton says. It is obvious that tradition is only democracy 
extended through time. Tradition is democracy extended through time. The collective voice of all the people. That's what democracy means. He continues, it is trusting to a consensus of common human voices rather than some isolated or arbitrary record. Tradition may be defined as an extension of the franchise. Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Chesterton says that tradition, the truths and habits and worldviews that have been passed down along the ages are called the democracy of the dead. Keep tracking. He goes on for a few more sentences. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. Ooh, Chesterton. He called all living people a small and arrogant oligarchy. It's those who just happen to be walking about. All Democrats object to men being disqualified by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. We will have the dead at our councils. The ancient Greeks voted by stones. These shall vote by tombstones. It is all quite regular and official for most tombstones, like most ballot papers, are marked with a cross. Now, that's some heady stuff, but I want you to try to wrap your your mind around it. What he's saying is that the testimony and voices and opinions and headlines of the here and now, of our peers, of our contemporaries, of all living people, is quite small compared with all the wisdom and all the tradition and all the worldview that has come before. Now that's amplified times 10,000 when we say we're not just talking about any traditions or any worldviews or any wisdom, but we're talking about a biblical and God-given kind of wisdom and worldview that has been passed on from generation to generation to generation, which is what the book of Proverbs is. It's truth traditionalized and transmitted from father to son and then to his son and to his son and to his son. And I think we are part of that arrogant and vocal oligarchy that has cut ourselves off from old truth because we prefer the truth of scientific progress. We've bought into a lie that this generation is smarter and more sophisticated and knows better because of advancement in medicine and technology and in societal issues. We, we look at today and think how much better it was. And help me, let me help you. I'm not saying uh, that I'm against Advil. I'm on it right now. There are wonderful advancements that have taken place, but when we look at those as the pinnacle of mankind's achievement and ignore the truth that this modern generation willfully suppresses and ignores, it's great that we can reduce inflammation and fight cancer, 
but it won't matter in a thousand years if we've forsaken truth that transcends time. Does that make sense? And so what Proverbs 4 is driving at is a father's instruction that looks beyond what the father is saying to his source. Look at verse three. When I was a son, consider Solomon's voice here. When I was a son to my father, who's he talking about? It's David, King David, the the one who was a man who sought God's heart, the one who was elevated from shepherd to king, the, the greatest king that Israel would ever know the one who would be God's king instead of the the people's choice of, of insufficient Saul. He's talking about the truth that he learned and was entrusted with from his father. And that's where I want your mind to be as we work through these three speeches, these three poems, these three songs that are a father's wisdom. That would be sufficient introduction, I think, but I wanted to say one more thing. I want you to think about you as you think about those who've gone before you. I want you to think about your dad, whether he's a wretched dad or a great godly father. And I want you to think about his dad too. And I want you to be thinking about your great-grandfather. How many of you know your great-grandfather? Raise your hand. Raise it up. Keep it up. Put it up for real like you're proud of it. Yeah. Even if he was a bank robber or something. Okay, so most of you don't know your great-grandfather. I mean, there's just a handful of people that know their great-grandfather in here. Think about that. How many of you know your great-great-grandfather? Raise your hand if you know your great-great-grandfather. Do you know his name? Ray. Ray, good. Is it like because everybody's named Ray? No, okay. But you, you know him. You've heard stories about him. Does anyone else know their great-great-grandfather? Nobody. And that's how it's going to be three generations from now. You will not be remembered except for Papa Ray. And I wonder what you'll leave behind because there is something that can remain and it's truth that's transmitted. So I want you to think about yourself as you relate to the stream from which you came. I also want you to think about yourself in light of Proverbs 4, not just in your current status as a 20-year-old, but I want to think about your best and most mature and most developed self. When is it? It's probably different for everybody, right? But when are you in your prime? Mine is right now. I am absolutely in my prime. Peak prime. When are you in your prime? When are you your most mature, your most developed, your most convicted and convinced and driven and focused. When is that going to be in your life? I want you to think about all that's gone before you and I want to think about your most mature self. Becoming the person you will eventually be in full maturity. Embracing your worldview. 
owning your philosophy of life, your personal mission statement if you're a TED Talk person. Who you are in the deepest part of you, the realest part of you, the part that will be tested and found to be true, the final version, the highest version of yourself in this life, I want you to think about what it's going to be made of and where it's going to come from. Because Proverbs chapter four is set on teaching us that we are all the products of the chapters of the life in which we grew up. We're a product of the experiences that we've had. We know that. We're a product of the places that we've gone, the people we've known. And you think of all the ways that you've become the person you are today. The education that you've had is a massive part of that, isn't it? The teachers that you admired that influenced you, the courses that you studied, the books that you have read and will read. You are becoming a product of so many parts of your life and friends influence you and mentors influence you and the lessons that you've learned through trial and error, mistakes and trouble, everything in your life, good and bad, is shaping you into the person that you will be, forming your character and convictions. And a lot of it had nothing to do with you. You were born into that school district. You were born into the the zip code that you you grew up in, the education you were afforded, the library you had access to. But I want you to think even more about your life is where it is in large part because of your fathers for good and for bad. And life is supposed to work this way. We're all building on a foundation that went before you. And some of us lament our fathers. And there's takeaways here for those without godly fathers or without fathers at all. And there's takeaway here for those who had godly fathers and influences in their lives. And there's also a kind of settled determination that I hope all of us will share, my fellow young people, as we think about what kind of fathers we will be, what kind of marriage you'll build, what kind of truth you will transmit. There's only one perfect father, and Jesus had him. But all of us can be challenged to listen to the voice of the fathers and their fathers as we listen to this song that is the wisdom of fathers. It's divided by those speeches, those headings, hear, O sons, or hear, my son. And it starts with verses one through nine of a father's wisdom. And it says, hear, O sons. And so first let's consider a father's inheritance, a father's inheritance. Verse one, hear, O sons. Please note the word, listen, my sons, is the same word as Deuteronomy 6, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. It was the cry that was given to every Israelite that God is God and there is no other. It was the memorized daily prayer of all Israelites to hear and to listen It was a reminder that there was a word that was outside of us and trusted to us. And Proverbs 4.1 starts with that same concept of listening. But it addresses not just 
a son, but all sons, and by, uh, by relationship, daughters, all the kids. And your Bible may translate this as children. I don't think that's a good translation because it makes you think of tiny kids. And tiny kids are obviously the recipients of teaching, but this teaching is for people your age. This is teenagers. This is college students. That's why he's talking about the things he's about to talk about. Little kids aren't warned about adultery in chapter 5 and 6. It's older children, sons that need to be concerned about these things. And what's in focus in these first nine verses is an inheritance. It's a divestiture. It's a, it's a passing on of truth from one generation to the other. And so he says to his sons, listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. This is the teaching that has been the focus of the book of Proverbs throughout. It it grabs the sons by their collars and says, verse 1, pay attention and gain understanding. Verse 2, he uses this word repeatedly, give, give attention as I give you sound teaching, verse 2. I give you sound learning so you do not forsake my teaching. This repetition in the book of Proverbs might start to bug some readers. Some have read the book of Proverbs and thought, I get it, I get it. He just keeps saying the same thing over and over again. But I think it's helpful to note that Solomon could have arranged this with a unique chapter that went, chapter one is completely different No repetition of language in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. He could have had a completely different manner. But Solomon and the Spirit of God who inspired this is insistent that you receive the same truths over and over again. And I think part of the redundancy of the book of Hebrews, though there are angles and emphases that differ from chapter to chapter, is that there is a very basic amount of information that's supposed to be conveyed. But this wisdom isn't so complicated and complex that every chapter needs to be unique. Instead, we're hearing it over and over again because we need to hear it over and over again. It's simple. A father's instruction is to be paid attention to. Understanding is the thing you need to gain. Sound learning is what you ought to pursue. And forsaking teaching is the greatest danger that could beset you. And so Solomon, as the teacher of wisdom, looks back to his boyhood in verse 3. Where did he get all this teaching from? Well, it was a gift from God in an ultimate sense, but in a practical sense, what he learned and who he is is a result of the conveyance of his father's inheritance. And when we think about inheritance, we think of all the junk that you'll clean out of your parents' house and throw away when they are old and you are old as well. Have you ever been a part of that process? Cleaning out a person's house of all their earthly possessions? the things that they found valuable, the countless cookbooks and magazines and knickknacks. That's what we usually think of as inheritance or you know, massive reserves of cash in a more positive way. But the inheritance that's in focus here is in verse four. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender and only child of my mother, the tenderness there, the only child, that's 
not a way of saying that Solomon was the only born son. Bathsheba had four kids that we know about. Uh, it's talking about his preciousness to his mother, his precociousness, his, his ignorance, his youngness. That's what's in focus in the language in verse 3. But the inheritance is shown in verse 4. He taught me and said. You see, the greatest gift a father can give to his children is sound teaching. It's truth. It's not an old truck. It's not a a shed full of possessions. It's not a vast storehouse of wealth. The greatest thing a father can give his son is an inheritance of truth. And Solomon looks back at David, who was an imperfect father, as all fathers are, but he remembers what his father said to him. In verse 4, he taught me and said, lay hold of, grab onto, cling to my words with all your heart. Keep my commandments and you will live. So much of parenting is keeping your kids alive. It is. It's feeding them. It's not letting them run in front of traffic. It's teaching them what electrical outlets can do. I mean, that's, that's what you do. You teach kids how to survive, right? Like, don't eat that. It's strychnine or plastic or a shoelace or whatever kids put in their mouth. And sometimes in parenting... It's hard to differentiate all those commands, brush your teeth, go to bed, don't hit your sister or your brother, from the commands like, trust Jesus and you will live. Because they're all blurred together. And this is not necessarily a problem, it's just a reality. I mean, parents tell their kids to do so much stuff. And so Solomon tries to zero in on the words of his father that are in accordance with truth and eternity. And he sees the commands of David to be the ones that affect the path or outcome of his life and impact his heart, verse 4. And so the voice of David continues in verse 5, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or swerve from them. How much regret did Solomon have as he looked at the lessons of his father David and found out how many of them he was repeating for his own pain and suffering and sorrow? And how many times did Solomon think, even as he penned this book over the course of his life and gathered these teachings, and the way I think of the chronology of Solomon's life is this collection of Proverbs was the work of his entire life. The book of Ecclesiastes is his statement at the end of his life of a realization of how far he had drifted and a recognition of the wisdom of God that transcended the choices that he made because of the difficulty of life, because of the brevity of life. And so I see Ecclesiastes as a reminder that Solomon did come to the right way of thinking eventually, that his wisdom did stay close to him. 
And so as he gathered all these Proverbs, so many of them from his father, but from even around the world, he's zeroing in on not the 10,000 commands that parents give their kids, but on those central commands that have to do with the preservation of their heart, with them staying on the right path. And it seems to be a matter of life and death, verse 4. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom, get understanding, verse five. Do not forget my words, do not swerve from them. Verse six, do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom, though it cost all you have. That's what we learned in chapter two and chapter three, the invaluable nature of wisdom. You need to get understanding, esteem her, value her, and she will exalt you, embrace her, and she will honor you. Verse nine, she will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendor. This is remarkable teaching from Solomon because he's so riveted on the importance of the sons and daughters hanging on to this truth at any means necessary. And he realizes the only way this is going to work for him to say, come and get it, get wisdom, get understanding. The only way this is going to happen, and this is true in our lives, is if you want it. That's why it becomes a matter of the heart, doesn't it? Because you can hear the voice of of wisdom telling you to forsake your sin and to honor God and to follow him. And you won't do it unless you want to. And so no matter how many times he says get wisdom, he reminds us how alluring wisdom is. You must love her. You can't flip a switch and be obedient. Obedience can only flow from a heart that is concerned about what matters, a heart that is tuned into truth, a heart that wants to hang on to wisdom and doesn't want to forsake wisdom, a heart that understands the the supreme value of godly living. That's what wisdom is, of right thinking. That's what wisdom teaches and that there's nothing to be valued above truth. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. David tried to intrigue his son with the reward of wisdom. He said that if you esteem her, she'll exalt you. If you embrace her, she'll honor you. She'll set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendor. There's a negative component to wisdom, you should not do these things. Chapter five is all about uh, how to honor the Lord in um, your marital life. And there's a lot of do not. Chapter three had a lot of do nots in it. This chapter doesn't have a lot of, a lot of commands in it, except do not forsake wisdom. Instead, it's trying to show you that the inheritance is yours. This inheritance of truth, whether it's something that your father tried to give to you or didn't try to give to you, the inheritance is being offered to you now and you could recalibrate your life and generations to follow by providing this inheritance of truth for your kids and your grandkids. And the reward is is incomparable. 
It's a wreath or a garland or a crown of grace and a glorious crown of splendor. That's what's being offered. And a father's wisdom is being offered in the presence of, well, the opposite. And so a father's inheritance and then a father's warning, verses 10 through 19, a father's warning. And here he brings the danger into focus. This is something we've seen already in Proverbs, but let's be reminded again. Verse 10, listen, my son, accept what I say and the years of your life will be many. I guide you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it will guard it well. It is your life. For it is your life. Verse 14, do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil men. Verse 15, avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your own way for they cannot sleep till they do evil. They are robbed of slumber till they make someone fall. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. The words here are all about walking. The word path, the word travel, the word walk. It's all the repetition of direct, the the Hebrew word for way, path. And the teacher, the father, is trying to keep you on the right path. And he does so by showing you its beauty in verses seven through nine, and then by showing you the danger of going off of this path. And some of you know this experientially. You've lived it. You took the first exit you could find on the freeway from truth. And you went way off the path. And you found a path that was not guarded and not guided by wisdom. You found a path that showed you exactly what wickedness would lead to. And you suffered harm. And you had fun doing it. Because just like wisdom, the pursuit of folly, of sin, of ungodliness, is never done mechanically. It's done by desire. Your heart desired evil things and you went after those appetites. You went after those those sins and vices. You fed the flame of lust. You went after greed. You listened to the voice of the ungodly. You went down that path and you tasted the consequences of your sin or, or maybe currently you are tasting the consequences of your sin or maybe you're so drunk in your folly that you still don't realize how lost you are. But David's warning Solomon that you are what you eat. Verse 17, they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But here it is, the path glowing and well-lit of righteousness and a path dark and damning of wickedness. It's Psalm 1 all over again. It's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And the crazy part is, is that in a fallen world, there's fathers along both paths urging you along. Maybe you had a bad dad. Maybe his teaching was bad. Maybe his example was bad. 
You're not alone. In a fallen world, there's lots of bad dads. Augustine, St. Augustine, Augustine's in Florida, Augustine's in heaven. Uh, Augustine, in the fourth century, considered one of the great teachers of the church. His contribution to Christian theology is immeasurably large. He wrote six million words in the course of his life that we have still today. Augustine was famous for his debauched life, and he had a very godly mother. Her name, Monica, Santa Monica. You might have been there on the 405. It's named after her. And she tried to teach little Augustine to stay on the path. She talked this way to him. But Augustine's father didn't hold to his wife's religious opinions. Augustine's father, Patricius, was very concerned about Augustine and about him being on the right path. And to Patricius, the right path meant wealth. Experience life. Gain a place in society. Fulfill your lustful desires. It was Augustine's father that took Augustine to visit his first prostitute. Through his mother's tears, Augustine's father steered him the very wrong way. He wanted him to be successful by his depraved father's understanding of success. And in Augustine's confessions, his poetic, incomparable testimony, if you've never read Augustine's confessions, they should withhold your college diploma until you do. Facts, I believe it, I said it, I'll hold to it. But when you read it, you often hear his lament towards his earthly father. His father's desires for him were for wealth and societal significance. But because God's grace won over in Augustine's life, it was his mother's prayers and tears that would ultimately triumph in his life as he would renounce all sinful pleasure and repent of his sins and pursue Christ and follow him all the days of his life. He went so far as to swear off not just sexual immorality, but sex altogether for the rest of his life. I mean, Augustine's love for chastity would lead to all the weird priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church, but for him it was just a reversal of course because he'd been set on the wrong path by his dad. I mean, you can't blame your dad. It's your own heart. It's your own lusts. But a good father provides that inheritance of truth and illustrates the danger through a life of righteousness that's a bright path for the boys to follow. I don't think it's immature to ask, what kind of father do you want to be? I don't think it's a bad question to ask the young ladies here, what kind of boy 
are you going to marry? And what kind of man will he be? What kind of father will he be? What kind of example will he set? Or are you more aligned with Patricius and you just want to make sure he makes a lot of money? So a father's inheritance, verses 1 through 9. A father's warning, verses 10 through 19. And a father's vigilance, verse 20 to 27. After showing these two paths, he shows the required attentiveness, care, vigilance, concentration that's required, starting in verse 20. My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them with all your heart. And there it is, leb, Hebrew word for heart, the center of your being. It is not just our kind of heart, which is this. We mean affection and love when we say heart. When you say to that girl in your class, give me your heart by text. (laughs) Dumb. You mean, love me back. When the Bible says heart, it means love and will and mind and volition and all of you, your whole self. And so with this kind of desperate vigilance and concentration and attentiveness, he says, son, Listen to my words. Actually hear what I'm saying and hang on to this with all that you are, with the the whole self, with your heart and mind and soul. Keep these things that I'm entrusting to you. Take this inheritance. Take these warnings and dangers and with vigilance guard over them because there is everything in you and outside of you that will try to pull you off of this path. And verse 20 says, my son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. I don't know if you have anything that you guard closely, that you keep a really good eye on. You know, I always wonder about the hotel safe. You ever see the hotel safe when you go to a hotel? There's a safe in there. I'm scared to use a hotel safe. There's instructions involved. I'm not ready for it. I feel like I don't know how to do that. I don't know about the hotel safe. But that's also because I don't have anything. But I wonder if you have something and you've used the hotel safe. I just think it's an incredible amount of vigilance for whatever junk you got in your bag that you put something in the hotel safe. And then you get it out of the hotel safe. I'm positive I'd leave it in the hotel safe. Do you have something of great value? Something you really watch over? Something you really protect? Something that's got an alarm on it? Something that you make sure you don't leave it out to get stolen? I had a skateboard. In the fifth grade, I was rad. I could shred. And I left it on the porch. We lived on a corner of kind of a busy street in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is maybe the the center point of all crime on earth. And so I didn't have a skateboard after that. 
I probably would have been a professional skater. But I lost my skateboard because I didn't guard it. David told Solomon to guard this like a soldier guards a palace. To guard this the way you'd guard that most precious possession, the way you'd watch over a treasure. This is protected stuff. And the main thing he wants you to watch over is this truth that you've internalized, these warnings that have become a worldview and they have become so coalesced and so internalized and so understood that they are in your heart. In other words, godly living, living in a way that honors God is what defines every part of your life. That's what it means to guard your heart. I know this guard your heart verse that you've seen probably your whole life you think is mostly about like not giving your heart to some bad hombre or something like that that you know guy in 8th grade your 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 parents told you guard your heart and they were probably right about that and that's how we think about it mostly in terms of romance but guarding your heart in the context means that you're guarding the truth that's entrusted to you and it's going to impact every area of your life romance finances friendships all of it and if you don't believe me look how he explains what it means to keep them, his teachings and warnings, with all your heart, verse 20, verse 21, do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. What does it mean to keep them within your heart? Verse 22, for they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. Now, don't get all Pentecostal on me and think, well, if I walk in a godly way, I will never get COVID-19. I won't get cancer, I won't get sick, I won't have fatty liver because I I walk in God's ways. No, there's carrots involved in all that. Kale and carrots. When it says health to a man's whole body, it's a reminder that the heart is the reflection of your entire life's direction, the entirety of your life. Verse 23, above all else, guard your heart, guard your mind, guard your affections, watch out for the things that you love and treasure and value for it is the wellspring of your life. You see, the things that you value the most will dictate the direction of your life. Derek Kidner commenting on this verse in the need to pay attention to your heart said, a major part of godliness lies in dogged attentiveness to familiar truths. Hanging on to your convictions, hanging on to your morals, hanging on to your uh, Bible teaching that's been given to you, the convictions and worldview that you have been shaped by in the Christian faith is what it means to guard your heart. And when you have those things as the driving force of your life, everything springs from that like a fountain. And the source of that fountain flows clean and pure water. Verse 23 says, if you guard your heart, if you hang on to a father's teaching about godly living and wisdom, your whole life will spring from that. Every part of your life, so much so that he's going to use your whole body as a way to illustrate this. 
Verse 24, put perversity away from your mouth. Well, that's the body part that is the monitor of what's going on inside, according to the book of James. If you can control your mouth, you can control your whole body. What comes out of your mouth flows from what your heart is. And so if you've got a perverse mouth, you have a perverse heart. And so he says, guard your heart because this is health to your whole body. Example number one is mouth. Example number two, keep corrupt talks from your lips. This is what you say to others. Verse 25, let your eyes look straight ahead. It's that bright path, not the dark path. What do you feast on with your eyes in this electronic age where pornography is instantly available any time you want it? If your heart is perverse and twisted, then your eyes will not look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you, David says. A lesson he learned on a rooftop when he didn't do this right. Verse 26, make level paths for your feet. What are feet? Another body part. Feet talk about your direction. They talk about where you go, your habits, your movement, the direction of your life, and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. See, my friends, the message of the book of Proverbs is to listen to the democracy of the dead. Solomon is long gone, but his words live on. Your great-great-grandfather, you don't even know his name. But there's a chance, by God's grace, that you know his heart. And if you dig down into God's word and into God's wisdom and make that the directive of your life, then everything else will flow to that. Not just in your life, but in your son's life and in your son's son's life. We are so short-term in the way we think about parenting and truth and even conversion. People think they're, I mean, I can count on two hands how many moms and dads with kids younger than three years old have blogs where they instruct people about parenting. Phenomenal. Podcasts. Oh, share your wisdom, baby haver. Share it. And I just think they don't understand what a long-term work this is. It's not best evaluated when your kids are three or 13, or sometimes even 33. But it will be seen for generations to come. Because truth is the only thing that can triumph generation after generation. Think about the testimonies that we find most dear. We just used the name Augustine. How many generations ago did he live? If a generation is approximately 30 to 40 years, 33 years, something like that, for one generation to end, another one to begin, think of all the voices of all the generations over the 2,000 years since Christ's resurrection have made an impact 
on their own families, on the church. You think of great names like Luther, Calvin, George Mueller, Spurgeon. Guys we talk about around here who are long dead, way more dead than your great-great-grandfather. But for some reason, we remember their names. And it's because they were conveyors of truth. And we need to be that. We need to be those conveyors of truth in our, in our little lanes that we're in. Teaching each other truth. Expressing to our parents a gratitude when they've invested in you and given you truth. And so whether you have a bad dad or a godly father or you're fatherless or you're a father-to-be or you'll marry a boy and make him a father, where is the place of wisdom, of godly living? How will it influence you? And how will it show like a, like a rock that ripples across the pond? How will truth ripple across your family for generations to come Well, it can ultimately only happen by faithfulness to the truth and by the grace of God. That's why we're studying the book of Proverbs. But that's why the book of Proverbs doesn't need to just be studied. It needs to be internalized and lived and taught even when you're a grandfather. Our Father, we're grateful for your wisdom that transcends our inadequacies There's no father here, present, past, or future that lives up to this standard. But God, you do. You are a perfect father to the fatherless. You're perfectly faithful when we're unfaithful. And we operate only because of your grace. So Father, thank you for the good example that you provide for the sound teaching that you entrust. And I pray that you would provoke us to be faithful evermore, that fathers would teach their sons and sons would teach their sons and their sons would teach their sons. And families would hold on to truths that aren't the voice of this contemporary worldview, but instead a voice much older and wiser that reflects the very voice of God. In Jesus' name, amen.